0: There are times in life when verminous, scalped man trains his wild and staring gaze upon the green membranes of space, for ahead of him he seems to hear the ironic jeers of a phantom. He reels and bows his head. What he's heard is the voice of conscience. Then, quick as a madman, he rushes in amazement from the house, taking the first route available and tears along the rugos plains of the countryside. But the yellow phantom does not lose sight of him. "'and just as rapidly pursues. "'Sometimes on a stormy night "'while legions of winged squids "'at a distance resembling crows "'float above the clouds "'and scud stiffly toward the cities of the humans, "'their mission to warn men to change their ways,' the gloomy-eyed pebble perceives amid flashes of lightning two beings pass by, one behind the other, and, wiping away a furtive tear of compassion that trickles from its frozen eye, cries, Certainly he deserves it. It's only justice. Having spoken thus, it reverts its timid pose and, trembling nervously, continues to watch the manhunt and the vast lips of the vagina of darkness whence flow incessantly like a river Immense shadowy spermatozoa that take flight into the dismal aether, the vast spread of their bats' wings obscuring the whole of nature, and the lonely legions of squids grown downcast viewing these ineffable and muffled fulgurations. Yes, I just said vagina of darkness, and I am Carla Nappy, and this is the New Books Network Seminar. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I just finished talking with Eugene Thacker about three of his books that together form the Horror of Philosophy series, In the Dust of This Planet, Starry, Speculative Corpse, and Tentacles Longer Than Night. All of these were published by Zero Books, the first in 2011 and the last two in 2015. And what I've just read to you is something that you'll hear us talk about um, later in the conversation. This is a work by Latre Amont, which deals with some of the themes Um, that the books together uh, deal with in their putting into conversation works of philosophy, works of horror, supernatural horror in particular, in order to use a kind of comparative methodology to explore big themes of life, contradiction, the unhuman, um, thinking, philosophy, pessimism, and lots of other things related to it, um, as you'll hear in the course of the interview to come. These are amazing books. Um, They are dealing with themes and dealing with themes in a way that are so completely thoughtful, um, well-considered, imaginative, and inspiring that the best thing that I can do for you is to tell you, read them. Um, Read all three of them. They work together as a unit, and together they explore the themes that you'll hear us talking about in a moment. It was such a pleasure um, to talk with Eugene about them. And what you'll hear us talking about over the course of the next hour includes not just moments from these three books, um, but also ruminations about the ways that they fit together, the ways that a consideration of form, of the musicality of text and the musicality of language influenced how they were built, how they emerged, and how they fit together. And you'll also hear us talking about some of the larger implications of of what's happening in these books um, and beyond. So thank you so much for listening. Um, Thank you for sharing the next hour with me and with us. Um, It's something I'm really excited about. And thank you, as ever, for your support of the channel. Enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Eugene Thacker about the three books in his Horror of Philosophy series, In the Dust of This Planet, Starry Speculative Corpse, and Tentacles Longer Than Night. Welcome to the New Books Network Seminar, Eugene, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really excited about this.
1: Hi, Carla. Thanks for having me.
0: So the project is that we're talking about is called Horror of Philosophy, and we'll talk in a little bit um, as we kind of move through our conversation about what that means and, and how that means. But first, what brought you to this project Um, and to this particular problem as a focus for a book length, actually three book length objects that work together? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, a lot of it stems from my lifelong interest in the horror genre. And um, here and there, you know, both as a student and, um, and more recently, I've written about the horror genre, but I've never really found a satisfying way to go about it. Um, It seemed like the options that were out there were pretty finite or limited. Um, So there was a lot of, say, literary criticism or film criticism or sort of specialized media and genre studies. Um, And those were fine and and were interesting, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do. Um, And, you know, there was something that... (laughs) I was a little uneasy with in doing something like a horror, a, a sort of philosophy of horror in the sense that I, as a scholar or philosopher would come in and, and sort of explain or even explain away, um, a group of, of texts and, and films that I thought were interesting for all of their ambiguities. <laughs> and so, uh, So just that idea sort of prompted me to think about, well, why don't I just sort of embrace the ambiguities and and make that sort of the starting point for talking uh, about the genre? And that's when I thought about just flipping that phrase around. Instead of doing a philosophy of horror, maybe I sort of explore the horror of philosophy and sort of our inability to articulate um, in language or in discourse some of the themes or motifs that um, I found interesting in uh, in the genre. So that's sort of how it started.
0: So there are three books in the series, as I just mentioned, and each has a title that's taken from its final line. So each begins with its end. Ah, you're
1: Either. a very careful reader.
0: Ah, yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> do people not usually notice that? I mean, it's so striking. No, no, sure. I'm always,
1: I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I studied literature and and. So I take a lot of these things for granted. And, um, and I love the, the labyrinthine sort of aspects of a lot of, of literature. And so I always do, you know, do that in thinking about composing texts. But, you know, a lot of people don't either because they, they're just not interested or they're not looking or they're not trained to look. And so um, so, yeah, so you're actually... I think you might be the first person that's actually mentioned that in interviews. interview.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's also interesting because the figure, and we'll talk about this, right. But the figure of the spiral comes mm-hmm. up um, in at least a couple of the books. And so there's this kind of circling back and this play with beginnings and endings. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll, we'll get to, I hope a lot of that. But in the meantime, there are three books. Um, how did you come to decide on, well, first of all, did you plan this as a trilogy at the beginning um, and whether or not you did for you, Why is it important or how is it important that this has a tripartite structure, that this is a series of three books that work together?
1: Hmm. Uh, Yes, I did plan this as a trilogy to begin with. Um, That's not unusual for me because I I often do the unwise thing of of (laughs) planning big, ambitious projects, and then I don't think about the fact that I'll actually have to do the work um, for them. So that wasn't unusual, but, um, but what was sort of unique about it is that a lot of the architecture was sort of mapped out right at the beginning. And I kind of had this idea of doing um, one volume that was kind of a flyover and that would hit some of the, the major themes. And then a second and third volume that would be have a more strict method or approach, um, one volume, and they would both be approaches that involved creative misreadings of texts in a way, um, and which stems from my own sort of intellectual biography and how I, um, approach these texts or why I find them interesting. Um, so that would involve one volume that would misread, uh, works of philosophy as if they were horror stories as if they were stories about uh, human finitude, the limits of thought and the failure of thought and so on. And then a third volume that would do the reverse, that would read horror stories as if they were works of philosophy, read them for their concepts and their ideas instead of character plot and and so on. And so a lot of that was mapped out at the beginning and some of the specifics changed um, sections that i wanted to write that i decided not to include and vice versa but a lot of the macro structure was kind of there from the beginning Mm
0: -hmm. so the first so you've just given us a brief um, recap of the overall scope of or the the, uh, in overall terms um the kinds of work that the three books are doing especially in relation to each other so let's actually get right into it and get into the first one. This Mm -hmm. is In the Dust of This Planet, Horror of Philosophy, Volume 1, and as it's articulated in the beginning, the aim of the book is to explore the relationship between philosophy, especially as it overlaps with demonology, with mysticism, with occultism, and supernatural horror, and also the motif, as you put it at the beginning, of the unthinkable world, right? And so one argument of the book, again, as it's articulated at the beginning, is that horror is a non-philosophical attempt to think about the world without us philosophically. Okay, so we'll get to some of that, at least in the time that we have. But what I want to first ask you about is the form of the book. The Mm -hmm. form of the book, you're right, it it takes the form of three question on demonology, Um, warning, I'm going to mispronounce everything, Such as (laughs) programming, six lectio on occult philosophy, and nine disputatio on the horror of theology, and you take us into um, the importance of and the origin of um, these three forms in the course of the book. But um, Mm -hmm. so, can you talk a little bit about that um, as an architecture for this project?
1: Yeah. Part of it comes from uh, some work I did on an earlier book called uh, Afterlife, which was exploring um, scholastic philosophy and mysticism. And in doing that, I was really taken by the different genres of writing that were then current and which are points of origin for many of the forms of writing that we have today. And I thought that was a nice kind of structure, um, not because it was airtight or bulletproof or anything, but just because of the kind of m- almost musical quality that it had. And when you look at, say, um, you know, the, any, any sort of questions, say, by Thomas Aquinas or somebody, you know, you notice there's a lot of loopholes and, and things that aren't addressed, and some things are swept under the carpet and whatnot but there 's something really interesting in the all sort of polyphony of of voices that come in, and I thought from a literary standpoint that was a a great um, structure to sort of use and so what I did is I in the three large sections, I just sort of used the different um, genres borrowed from medieval philosophy to to structure the writing, keeping both the the sort of musical fluidity but also letting that be a constraint on, uh, on the writing itself. So the question, you know, the question and answer is, is almost sort of a predecessor to our kind of critical essay. And the Lectio is a predecessor to the lecture format and the Disputatio is sort of like a class discussion or something. And so they're very loosely borrowed from that, um, that tradition. Mm-hmm.
0: Why medieval philosophy as a, as an inspiration here? <laughs>
1: Well, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that uh, I actually find there's the formal innovation, just in tr- again in terms of the poetics and the style of that period is really interesting. And it's a shame we don't, you know, it's a shame that 90% of what we do is just is academic essays because there's the history of philosophy, even just in the Western tradition, is just this rich reservoir of styles and, and different forms Um no longer write dialogues, for instance. I mean, that's that's unfortunate, you know. And so part of that is that. It's just the stylistic innovation. But also, um, in terms of the content of the book, in in the series, there's really a triangle. There's horror and philosophy. And then there's a third sort of element, either in between or or forming an apex, maybe, that is something to do with uh, religion or mysticism. And at least in the Western tradition, this is very much also the period when uh, mystical discourse becomes fully articulated as a as a genre, and so is sort of a, a way to combine form and content in the book without saying, I'm writing a book about uh, mysticism.
0: And another way in which this, um, uh, what you're saying really makes sense in terms of thinking about the structure and the kinds of argument in the book, Aristotle is there. All over the place, right? A sort of our, something that, or a voice that comes in even when he doesn't comes in, uh, he doesn't come in. And this again is kind of evoking a sort of medieval um, <laughs> and sort of medieval to early modern movement in terms of style and, and nature of argumentation. <laughs> So you, mm-hmm. you mentioned the Western tradition, and this actually brings me to um, something else that's really striking about the books. So all of the books on some level use a kind of comparative approach. They juxtapose works that might not ordinarily be put into conversation in the same book, right? And this is, this seems like a really important kind of methodology. So um, we'll get to the kind of Western Eastern, right? Part of that. But can you um, mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about the importance of that comparative methodology for you? Um, in what ways does that let you do something um, about these books uh, that's important for you and important for us to understand about what you're doing here?
1: Yeah, it's uh, the more I think about it, actually, it's it's deeply important for me. Um, both because I come out of a comparative literature and and philosophy background, so I is sort of just how I was trained in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but even prior to that, you know, a lot of the books that I discovered through uh, through my father or, or found on his bookshelf. I mean, you know, he had Rudolf Otto's uh, mysticism, East and West, and, and Suzuki, and and all of these sort of early texts that you sort of take for granted because it's there. And then you, you take that way of thinking for granted too. And then uh, it's only later that you are encouraged or forced to forget that to, to get your professionalization and so on. And you get all of this, you know, the typical factionalizations and and hyper specialization that you get in the academy. Um, But it's, you know, in it's an ongoing discourse. I think in uh, in philosophy, and it crops up every now and then, and then it sort of passes um, the wayside. I mean, it was a very interesting, rich discourse in uh, in English-speaking post-war Anglo-American circles, for instance, and um, and a lot of that's connected to translation and you know stuff that you're interested in too so it's i think it's something that comes up uh, again and again um but it's still striking to me how i guess i'm being maybe i'm just naive but like i just don't understand how a philosophy department can't have just as a normal sort of de facto way of operating somebody who specializes in uh in classical chinese thought or specializes in um, in Mahayana Buddhism or whatever. And, and it's unfortunate that that's the exception and not the norm still um, to this day. Um, so it's one of those things that I have both as a teacher, um, but also as, um, as a writer is to try to keep that um, practice going and find different ways of doing it that go beyond sort of superficial uh, comparisons.
0: I totally agree with you. Um, and I think one of the things that we're going to see in the next 10 years, right? If I'm optimistic, um, is that uh, the <laughs> more of that's going to change in philosophy departments, but we'll see. Um, but right. certainly that's, um, and the, the siren that you're hearing is indicating Carla. Ask him about the Kyoto school.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's saying, the siren is saying, don't be optimistic <laughs> right,
0: about the institution. What changing. are you doing, Carla? You're yeah. optimistic. Right. <laughs> but one of the really, really, one of many, but um, one of, for me, the most striking moments in which this comparative met- methodology really bears fascinating fruit is something that happens in the second volume. This is Starry Speculative Corpse, where you're talking about um, nothingness. Nothingness, um, and you bring in uh, examples from uh, the Kyoto School, um, examples from the work of Nishida, um, and you talk here um, using this, again, comparative methodology about nothingness as an example of what a post-national global philosophy might look like, um, in the words of the book. So can you talk um, for us a little bit about this, the importance of bringing in the Kyoto School and related thinkers into this treatment of nothingness um, here in the book, as an example of the um, the fruits of this kind of comparison we've been talking about?
1: Yeah, Um did I say that a post-national global philosophy? You
0: totally, the book did. Oh, the book
1: did. That's <laughs> but we'll just, talk about authorship, sounds, right? It sounds horrible. It
0: totally doesn't. I mean, uh, I think it's really, really importantly provocative, right? Oh. You know, I think it's it it brings things to a head and then kind of you know um, brings us to another place afterwards. But I, you know, I think it's very provocative <laughs> in a really useful way. But you don't have I mean, to own that right, right
1: now. <laughs> post, uh, maybe it should be post-national, but also post-planetary, or, like, somebody other than humans should take it up, but not not us, definitely. Um, but, yeah, you know, the the so part of the, the challenge of doing a comparative approach, as you, you're well aware of, is how to do it in an interesting way and in a rigorous way. And um, so for me, it involves... Uh, And I'm sure you you might have had a similar experience. It involves a lot, a ton of sifting and and going through stuff. And I just sort of accepted that I do have these particular interests and I have these biases. And, you know, my radar is looking for certain things, certain sort of uh, philosophies, structural motifs or whatever. Um, and then just sort of doing due diligence and going through and getting like a sense first of what are the traditional ways in which these histories are told. And and then in that, you know, you look for things that, that sort of cue you in a sense that, oh, there's something there. There's something going on, say, with, with Nishitani and the way he's talking about nihilism. It's, you know, he's reading Nietzsche and, and Heidegger, but it's different at the same time. And, and then that tells you that there's something there to sort of dig deeper. So it's a way for me to hone in on something as and be as concrete as I can, but also do that under the broader sort of gesture of, of doing a comparative approach. And for me and, and for this project, it was really the Kyoto School, and, and very specifically um, Keiji Nishitani, who um, became that sort of, that way to concretize it. And it was very convenient um, for me, too, because these were philosophers who literally um, intellectually and biographically had one foot in in both camps, so to speak. Um, For instance, Nishitani um, had the equivalent of kind of a postdoc to um, study abroad, and this was in the late 20s, early 30s. Um, And he was trained in in Mahayana Buddhist thought and had read his Nagarjuna and and Dogen and so on. But he, from a young age, he was very taken by Dostoevsky and and Nietzsche and and so on. And so when he got the scholarship, it was one of these cultural exchange things, and you could sort of pick where you wanted to go. And his uh, first choice was to go and and study with Bergson uh, in Paris. But Bergson um, was quite old and ill, and so he, you know, he couldn't take any more students. And so his backup choice was Heidegger. <laughs> his number two was Heidegger. <laughs> and, at, um, and so he said, okay, I'll study with Heidegger. And when he was there, um, it was – and he had already been steeped in uh, German philosophy, particularly German idealism. And had read Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and went to go study with Heidegger and wrote sort of a, a kind of long dissertation on Meister Eckhart and Zen in the early 30s, you know. And so this, and this, is, this, this is a similar story with all of the, the major thinkers of, of this tradition, which it's a tradition that's a living tradition that continues to this day. But it's, it's syncretic from the very start. And um, that I find um, super interesting about it because for them, doing philosophy meant doing comparative philosophy. There was no distinction really between the two. And so he became a focal point, particularly because a lot of his work focuses on the differences between Eastern and Western concepts of negation and, and nothing or nothingness. And so that was a convenient way for me to sort of talk about some of those ideas in that section that deals with um, absence or the abyss or the void.
0: Thank you so much. That's, I think, one of, again, for me, um, the most kind of sparkling moments of some of these books. But another really Mm -hmm. sparkling moment is something that came up throughout um, the books for me um, and something that informs why I just allowed you to kind of get a, a little bit of an out um, in terms of owning the post-national global thing. I'm saying it's the book because authorship um, becomes a really fascinating problem and um, kind of material to work with in these books. Mm-hmm. In the first one, in addition to these three sections that are set up according to these three medieval um, forms that we talked about, there's also a final um, section in the at the end of the book called the subharmonic murmur of black tentacular voids now this section of the text is an extended commentary on a question so in the words of the book can there exist today a mysticism of the unhuman i said unhuman right so for mm-hmm. listeners that's actually really important one that has as its focus the climatological meteorological and geological world in itself and moreover, one that does not resort to either religion or science. Now, to do this, what this section of the book does is it looks at an anonymously authored poem circulating online and in some journals. Now, I won't um, kind of belabor that point, but this is an example of something that happens throughout the book. Kind of anonymously or potentially, right, if I'm guessing right, pseudonymously um, authored works that are mm-hmm. being woven together with works that are not either of these things. And I'll just, I won't name the author's names for me that came up at the (laughs) end of the third book, but at the end of the third book, there are several author's names that I suspect might also fall into this category. So um, I'm just going to hit the ball back to you. Can you talk about (laughs) this um, as a method, um, kind of anonymity and pseudonymity in terms of how they shape what's happening in terms of your process in these books,
1: yeah, well, uh, my kudos again for even mentioning that because um, this i mean there's different you know as you point out there's different forms of playing around with authorship I mean certainly there are anonymously authored works and and we're aware of I mean that has uh, of course a long history. Uh, and then there are use of pseudonyms there's even um, heteronyms in this in the sense that Pessoa used them, you know right. fake biographies and right. so on um, i blame I have Lovecraft to blame for a lot of this, actually, because one of the things that I found fascinating about Lovecraft in my early encounters with the writing was the almost um, dossier style of his stories, almost documentary style. I mean, he would cite an article in an obscure natural science journal, you know, that is the source for this. I mean, it's very uh, academic and, and and bibliographic, kind of. Almost as if somebody was just giving you a folder of stray documents and it was up to you to sort out what had happened or what had transpired. And... Um, I loved that uh, it's sort of like a crypto bibliography kind of thing, you know, referencing Miskatonic University and and all of these things. Um, and I think a lot of Lovecraft fans also take great delight in that, in that sort of mixing of the so-called the the factual with the the fictional and so on. And so I've I've actually done that in every book I've published. There's crypto bibliographic references in all of them. And or different, you know, there's different uh there's different structural anomalies, if not actual crypto bibliographic things um, in all the books. And that just comes from my background. I mean my my first publications when I was a student were more like experimental fiction and published in zines and so on. And so that that's the literary avant-garde sort of that's that's always been with me. And also just thinking, not taking writing or a book for granted and just thinking about how can I do it differently, or do I why do it this way, or what are some other ways to structure this. So that can operate both in terms of say me talking about anonymously authored texts like the cloud of unknowing or something. But it, it can also be something that I can do um, as an author is sort of interject these things. Um, and some of my colleagues get frustrated with me because I'll, I'll attribute articles to them that they've not written. <laughs> but it's done in good faith because it's, it's almost like, wow, I really wish this person would write about this. That would be amazing. You know, if I could commission somebody to write about this. And so I'll do a, a lot of that, too. And in a couple of cases, they've actually gone on and written the article.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, so it comes (laughs) back full circle, kind of.
0: Have you ever seen a case in which um, readers of your books, and perhaps these books, perhaps not, have cited one of these authors not realizing that... Um, they were pseudonymous or I I don't want to say didn't exist because they do exist, right? I mean, that's the whole thing is they now exist. But have Mm -hmm. you ever seen anything like that happen where they kind of take on a life of their own after you've kind of given them life on the page? I've not done
1: an audit of this or like looked as if if this work or this author's been cited. Um, I have had people email me looking for a book (laughs) and you know... I've had if there are, I I don't know. I mean do usually I say us? it, usually I say you know I don't know or I've lost my copy or <laughs> it, <laughs> it it mysteriously burned in a fire that you know or something yeah I don't know depends so
0: I'm assu- I mean I'm assuming that um, someone with such playfulness um, with regard to. Um, and anon- anonymously and pseudonymously written works might also have some practical experience doing such things. And so um, if that is the case, I'm assuming that's the case, do you, can you talk a little bit about how either you're thinking about and weaving together the fruits of anonymous or pseudonymous scholarship and or your practice in creating them, if that's the case, how that influences, if at all, the way you think about your authorship, of these books, right? They're under Eugene Thacker. So how does that, if at all, shape, you know, how you're thinking about yourself or or Eugene Thacker as an author of these books here?
1: Yeah, it's actually, I mean, I'm. I will periodically write and publish things under pseudonyms or anonymously. I've done that since for years, mm-hmm. since I've been writing and publishing. And I just, I don't know, I had an awareness early on of uh, the vanity of publishing on the one hand. Um, And I mean, there's histories of the author function and all that kind of stuff. But just in terms of just what we do, um, there's that inescapable side of it. And I, I think that there's always a part of you that's like, if I knew ahead of time that this would never be published, would I still write it? You know, and I think there's always, you like to think that you're in it for the virtuous end in itself, kind of, but you never really know until after the fact, until it's not getting published, and then you have to confront it, or vice versa, somebody gives you, asks you or commissions you to write something. And those are very particular sorts of cases, but I'm always interested in this idea of Of you know what does it mean to be a a writer? You know, sort of a mundane, stupid question. But does it? Well, at what point can you call yourself a writer? It's that kind of a thing. And so I like thinking about these exercises and in sort of self-effacement or austerity, and just doing it as an exercise to see. Well, okay, I'm going to write something and not publish it and make that a rule to myself where I'm going to write something and publish it under a real pseudonym, not, not a, you know, a pseudonym that's easy to guess or something like that. And then, and then it's you're in different territory because you're like, well, what can I write? Well, my name's not attached to it. So I can write anything. I can say anything, not that I'm writing under oppression or anything, but it just changes suddenly um, the, the, structural possibilities of the writing. Whereas in a lot of cases, the reality is it's deeply deterministic by things like a particular discourse, academic specialization, peer review, tenure, um, notoriety, book sales, all of these things. We, We know this. These are all determining factors. So using these sort of counter-authorial kind of moves are ways to just sort of, like you say, experiment with those boundaries.
0: It also changes you, right? I mean, like, you now have, you, the person who is doing this, not um,
1: Mm -hmm. necessarily
0: you, but also you you Mm -hmm. now have many names. I mean, speaking of tentacular, Mm -hmm. you know, tentacles longer than night, right? I mean, this is a very um, different way of inhabiting a multiplicity of names. And so that's Mm -hmm. just... It's interesting to think with and to think about, I mean, especially in terms of one of the other major, for me, right, one of the other major themes that came out um, that's really across all of the books, but especially struck me in the second two. And this is the idea of kind of dyads and duplicities, right, contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the book, and this is um, beginning with Starry's speculative course, but it, it comes into all of the books. And uh, like I said, especially the third one as well. Um, the books are frequently working with and exploring the importance of dyads like being and non-being presence and absence um, mm-hmm. and also um, you talk about darkness or uh, the books talk about right darkness as both absence and as the presence of absence um i mean this is uh, something that gives life to a lot of ideas throughout the book so can you speak a little bit to that as a theme or a methodology, this idea of contradiction, Mm -hmm. duplicity. Um, I know they're Mm not the same thing, but um, yeah, why are these important
1: and how? Uh, Well, for me, they're important for a couple of reasons. Um, Contradiction's interesting and and broadly negation in in philosophy of logic um, because they have such a tenuous status in history of of Western thought, at least. And there's a sense in which there's always a premium placed on being over non-being or presence over absence and so on and so forth. And so part of the agenda was for me to explore that underside of them and also to think about contradiction not as a failure but as an interesting failure or as as part of logic, not an aberration of logic and so on. And a lot of this you can find in classical logic, but it's also sort of a discussion that's happening now um, surrounding things like paraconsistency and, and whatnot, but sort of different approaches to um, these these dyads that don't simply create an opposition or a hierarchy. And so a lot of the the horror fiction came in because they were sort of dramatizing that in, in a way I found that was interesting. And a lot of the philosophy I point to, especially as it overlaps with mystical discourse and the Eastern tradition stemming from the... Um, the uh, Prajna Paramita Sutras and Nagarjuna and so on, a lot of them are also open to logic as something that is constitutive of thought. That's not actually a, a failure of thought. And so that they're all tied through either a refusal of simple opposition and hierarchy, but also a refusal of any kind of third synthesis or something that would um, resolve the the diodes.
0: now extremophiles come up um and thank you for writing about that because i love <laughs> extremophiles. Well. Uh. way back um i was a science major in university and thought that that's what i would be studying oh wow uh-huh. a, um, uh. and so anyway like, i i really loved the bringing into the story of extremophiles as a way of thinking about contradiction um, and life and its possibilities can you talk a little bit about extremophiles for you, because I'm being super selfish and I just want to hear more about your, your interest in extreme, in Archaea and extremophiles.
1: Well, um, there's two sides to that. I mean, uh, I'd done some earlier work on sort of philosophy of science and technology <laughs> that was mostly focused on. What at the time, and I guess now, still were sort of bleeding edge sciences that were upsetting all of these boundaries that we had about the living and the non-living and the natural and the technical and so on. And I always found that space interesting because, um, again, this is me creatively misreading things um, because of that space between science and science fiction is so porous and, and fascinating, um, so I'll often incorporate some of those things, um, and I, t- I spent some time too when I was an undergrad. You know, I, I was a biochem major and worked in a pathobiology lab that for a totally while. Totally
0: doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah,
1: and <laughs> yeah. not, and it took me a while to realize that this is an actual profession and career and research. It's not just science fiction, but. Right. <laughs> Whatever. But I've always, you know, the, some of the earlier work I did was exploring that space of science and science fiction. So, you know, they come in not for me to make a comment about science per se, but as these, again, motifs, these philosophies kind of as a, they're um, interesting because they're lived contradictions in a way, in particular extremophiles, their life that should not be alive um by our current sort of standards and definitions and those moments are always interesting because for the sciences they tend to be paradigm shift sort of moments but they're interesting because you have this sort of fork in the road you either have to say well you know we're going to keep our existing criteria and this is not life after all and just sort of dismiss it or ignore it or you have to say, this is life and it contradicts everything we know. Now we have to totally relearn everything and, and retool the way we've thought about these basic categories, which is a heavy lift. And that fork in the road is, is exactly that same structure of, of thinking that you see in story after story of Lovecraft and, and the weird fiction authors those characters many of them trained as geologists and scientists confront something that is a lived existing contradiction and they have that fork in the road either they have to dismiss it and say and somehow recuperate it into their existing paradigms or they have to say actually we now know nothing and we have to you know we have to start over completely or in some extreme cases um, characters will sort of question whether we've ever known anything at all. And then it becomes um, especially interesting to me. So the, the science comes in there very, very cautiously and, and carefully just for that sort of motif of that kind of fork in the road.
0: See, I love that. Um, I love those moments in all these books. And another one of the major themes um, that speaks to some of these same issues, the upsetting of boundaries and how we understand life the forms of life um, is something that comes up in the last two books, especially, um, but I'll focus here where I'll turn us to tentacles longer than night. The third book, um, mm-hmm. and that is decomposition and decay. Mm. The power of decomposition and decay is all over this study, right? I mean, be, uh, it's there in the second book, but in the third book, um, when you take us into meditations on the demonic um, and you take us into, you know, Dante's hell and the body politic and, Dante inverting hell and giving us a political demonology. And then you talk about the sort of different ways of analogizing the natural body and the body politic. These bodies are decaying. These bodies are decomposing and there's a really wonderful way of using that to explore life and its contradictions and multiple forms and, and all of that here. So, um, can you maybe speak to that? The sort of the importance of, for you, um, understanding decay and decomposition as it shapes part of what's happening here. Yeah,
1: um, I think you're right. It it does sort of go through each of those three sections. Um, There's something, I mean, I wouldn't say by any means I'm an Aristotelian, but there's something about morphology that is running through each of those sections that's in the horror genre and in the examples I'm talking about. Um, but that can be understood also in a very broad sense. Um, and the, the chapter on, on Dante is more explicitly talking about the idea of the body politic and its various sort of incarnations and the underside of the, the body politic, the decaying or corruptible body. Um, and it, I guess you know you could read those three sections as as a different way of historicizing that in a in a, in a strange way. I mean, in the the Gothic tradition, decay becomes fecund and and sort of proliferative and and propagates in this weird way, and that's why um, Tremont was sort of a centerpiece for mm-hmm. me. Um, what the text performs what it's talking about in, in a lot of the ways and the way it cannibalizes other texts and sort of proliferates out of control and so on. Um, and then from the Gothic into sort of the weird, the 19th and 20th century tradition, something else happens. It's more maybe on the order of, of physics, like the morphology becomes dissipative and sort of ethereal and empty and, and you know, filled of emptiness, um, so to speak. And that's what I found a lot of the weird tradition authors talking about. So there's, yeah, I mean, something broadly about morphology and its stability or instability, whether it be thought forms or life forms.
0: Or text forms, right? I mean, you you just um, invoked uh, Luchayamon. Mm -hmm. And this is a focus of chapter three of the third book, Meditations on the Gothic. And this is fascinating because you're showing here an example of, um, and I'm just mentioning this in particular for listeners who may not be familiar with this work or may not have had a chance to read the books yet. You're showing us an example of this um, kind of interfingering of a concern with what's happening in the text and what's happening to the text and through the text here. Not uh-huh. only is right animality something that's happening um, in the text, but it's happening to the form of the text itself, and so morphology mm-hmm. is also happening at that level of form um, of the works that mm-hmm. you're talking about. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that um, with regard to maybe this particular work, or if you're inspired to, you know, range more broadly, that's fine too. Yeah,
1: I mean, I can talk forever about that book. That's um, that's incredible. one of, it's, it's one of my that book is is one of my Desert Island books. I mean, since I first read it as a student, I was I've but it's it's also it's also in a weird way kind of sacred to me so it's taken me a long time to actually write about it um and i don't know if I mean, I don't know if, if you do this too. I mean, I have this with music there's certain there's music that I won't just casually listen to. It's too meaningful or something or too precious, i suppose but um la i it's taken me a while to really sort of get into, and I still don't feel like i I did it in a way that was satisfying to me, but it's a totally anomalous book. And completely fascinating from a literary and sort of structural point of view, um, I mean it's broadly coming out of the tail end of the gothic tradition and and but going into the Parisian sort of late nineteenth century decadent aqua de kind of aesthetic, and so um, you know Baudelaire's Flowers of Evil, which is another desert island book for me, that's definitely has its imprint on it. But uh, there's so many things about it that are, that's fascinating. I mean, the first is that it is written under a pseudonym. I mean, this was not uncommon in the period, these sort of false aristocratic titles that authors would give themselves. Um, so it's written under a pseudonym. It is structured in six cantos or songs, Um, It has, sometimes it has a narrative, sometimes not. Sometimes it's just incredible prose poetry. Um, A bulk of uh, large chunks of the text are appropriated from other sources, um, and there are letters by the actual author, whose name is Zador Ducasse, where he sort of casually mentions all of the texts he's been appropriating from and and intermingling and weaving together in in different ways, including books of natural history. And he would sort of mash those up against Byron or Milton or something and create these incredible sort of um, bestial hybrids kind of between these texts. And so for that reason, um, a number of scholars including Bachelard and Blanchot and 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 others especially the Surrealists um they were drawn to this text because it seemed to sort of break every rule of textuality um at the time and still to this day it's it's an overwhelming read for um uh you know, to this day because of that sort of inconsistency and hybridity and, and so on of it.
0: and it's just Holy crap. I mean, when you read it, right? Getting to this part, forgive me, but you know, um, getting to this part, this is a section of these books where I have frequent. Marginal notes that just say, Whoa. (laughs) You know, whoa. Because the language, what's going on? It just smacks you across the face in like the best, most pleasurable possible way, if that makes sense. For listeners, please, please read this uh, section. This is um, chapter three, Meditations on the Gothic, when this book really takes center stage. And it is insane in, again, the best possible way. It just completely transforms what you think you know about a text, words, (laughs) and how they relate to each other and what they're doing when they come into contact with one another. It's just astounding.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of the texts, you know, now that you're mentioning this, a lot of them sort of bear this contradiction of talking about forms of negation, forms, you know, morphologies of negation, if you like, but they do it in a textually sort of fecund way. (laughs) <laughs> but it's different, you know. Dante's very much a systematizer, and which is why his spaces were so frequently illustrated, uh, often by architectural uh, illustrators. I mean, he's very much categorizing, classifying, and, and arranging things, but in this incre- with this incredible sort of imaginative kind of skill at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Lotrèmont, as I said, you know, you have this textual appropriation that precedes any of the the sort of literary avant-gardes. <laughs> Um, and then with the weird fiction writers, and for me, it's really Lovecraft and Algernon Blackwood are kind of um, centerpieces there. There's a certain kind of purple prose to that style of writing that you either you know you either like it or you don't like it. But if you like it, it's it's very interesting, and it borders on a kind of lyrical, almost prose poetry at time, even though what it's talking about is the fact that a character encountering something that is beyond all thought and conception at the same time. So they're all sort of dealing with these contradictions about morphology and, and negation.
0: Now, one of the things that immediately comes to my mind as we're talking and, and as um, I'm hearing and, and you talk about the importance of form, right? And composition mm-hmm. and architecture. And you're also frequently talking about music. Have mm-hmm. you had an opportunity to really really focus a work or a series of works on the musical specifically mm-hmm. like as a um as a focus of the work and and um, can mm-hmm. you talk about that Uh
1: the short answer is is no. I mean I've I've had I you know a lot of ideas but nothing really um sort of fit uh I mean music's always been Um, I grew up in a house where music was always playing and music and musicality and the structural sort of approach, you know, viewing music in terms of, say, polyphony or fugal forms. And like this has always been the way I think about writing and structuring Mm -hmm. books. So that part's always been there. But, yeah, I mean, I do have um, a group of writings that is also about music and sound and silence and so on. Um, And I just haven't... They just, you know, uh, books sort of have a a life of their own or or a morphology of their own. And nothing's really gelled. And I don't want to, I mean, I'm not necessarily somebody that's going to do like a philosophy of music or sound studies or, I don't know. You know, nothing's quite, I'm not a musicologist. But I think that said, you know, there is this really interesting space that, um needs to be explored more. That's on the one hand, that's something more than a record review, and on the other hand, that's more accessible than musicology. And there's there's a space in there, I think, where there there's a handful of sort of interesting works in in philosophy, for instance, that occupy that space. So I think that's the trick is finding the right the right sort of tone or the right key.
0: So consider this a special request from me. For you to someday write that book, uh, because I think it's it's kind of a natural progression of where this sure. is going.
1: Yeah. So
0: before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about Schopenhauer uh, mm-hmm. and the importance for you of Schopenhauer as it's shaping as he, um, his work is shaping what's happening here. So, and again, the siren is telling me Schopenhauer. Exactly right. Stay away. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you speak to that a little bit and talk about for you the importance of what's happening um, with Schopenhauer here for you? Yeah, you
1: know, with Schopenhauer, it's it's kind of the the same thing with some of the literary texts, um, although it's a bit different. You know, I mean, I first read him as a student around the same time I read Nietzsche, and so probably like many students, my introduction to Schopenhauer was via Nietzsche. And that meant that he was largely framed or presented as simply a precursor to Nietzsche, somebody that Nietzsche was influenced by when he was young and that he sort of moved past or moved beyond or that he had um, cast off, so to speak. And the more I teach and write about both of them, the less I'm sure about that. In fact, I'm I just taught a seminar on Nietzsche and, and I, I was starting to think that the whole entirety of Nietzsche's work is this ongoing attempt to shake off Schopenhauer and never quite succeeding. And that, you know, eventually got me back into reading Schopenhauer, who also is he's under he's under regarded in the history of philosophy, but he's underread also. People always read the world as will and representation, which is an interesting book, um, but you can all, you have to read that book as a failure of systematic philosophy. That book is in a, a shimmering failure of philosophy, and that's why it's interesting. Um, Schopenhauer is at his strongest not in these big Kantian philosophical tomes, but in these sort of para-philosophical modes of writing: the aphorism, the fragment. His essays aren't really essays by English comp standards, they're essays, and then they turn into just uh, rants, sort of grumpy rants, and then they come back and they have anecdotes and then they, you know, swerve back into philosophy, and And you only see his style when he's not sort of forcing himself to do Kantian style systematic philosophy. But he's the centerpiece of a lot of these books on the philosophical side, um, quite simply for the... The so-called pessimism that he um, that he uh, endorses, which isn't a term he ever really used, but um, just he had this intuition, this very simple but I think far-reaching intuition that we do not live; we are lived, mm-hmm. and just that simple inversion um, is extremely, I find, powerful. It's a turn from the human to to something unhuman, and. Uh, that sort of shift towards the unhuman, the anonymous, the indifferent, that is something I found um, echoed strongly in the horror genre and, and the examples I was talking about. So he's sort of a, a leitmotif in a lot of these chapters.
0: You mentioned um, just kind of early on when you were talking about his work just now, the form of his work, right? Aphorisms and fragments. Mm-hmm. You can see some of that actually coming through in the some of the chapters of the books here, right? Especially the second two books. Were you conscious of that? I mean, do you feel like that form um, was echoed in the way you were bringing form to what you were doing here?
1: Yeah, reading uh, some of his works helped me in the sense of, I mean, I knew that for these books, I wanted to do something that was between... Uh, a, A scholarly academic book and then a sort of trade pop book, something that was in between that, those two. And actually reading Schopenhauer was helpful just because he can be so misanthropic and off the cuff kind of, but then have these incredible one liners that will just encapsulate everything and just allowing that sort of fluidity of style um, worked its way into, especially the tail end sections where they are just sort of aphorisms and, and fragments. Um, most definitely, people like Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and, and Choron and so on.
0: Now, before we kind of come to our conclusion, um, I have to ask you about tentacles, right? Uh So you talk, um, Uh in the, one of the latter parts of the third book, um, you have an exegesis on tentacles and you talk about the importance of cephalopods, um, China Mieville's The Kraken. We have um, the work Vampira Toothis Infernalis, which I will kind of let you explain what that is. For listeners, I'm um, speaking of playing with authorship and um, the form of texts, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, now I mentioned this not just because I have a cephalopod um, kind of fascination, but also because mm. um, tentacles and the cephalopods actually come up throughout um, this project, not just in this book, and in, in, in ways either subtle or not so subtle. So it's another kind of theme that we can see throughout this. So can you talk a little bit about um, for you, the importance of, cephalopods and their tentacles for what's happening here
1: yeah um i mean for me there was it's less interesting because they're they're often talked about um as these sort of conceptual avatars for multiplicity or something and that's fine but that's also not what i'm interested in Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very skeptical of, like, these these forms of philosophical thinking that promote this sort of generosity, fecundity, everything's sort of t- touchy-feely, this hippie-loving, and everything's kind of flowing, whatever. Like, I just, I don't buy it. So I'm much more interested in forms of of negation. And for me, what's interesting about the tentacles is that you don't see, they just descend into the abyss. You don't see the point of origin of them and that was sort of the thing that was that was interesting about them almost like um a a puppet and the strings just go into the abyss the darkness kind of <laughs> and that was sort of the thing i wanted to um to evoke about them
0: Vampira toothis infernalis
1: yeah uh, yes what's up
0: with
1: that <laughs> <laughs> i i don't know myself i mean it's it's another amazing anomalous book in the best way where you just, you're amazed that somebody thought to do this. And number one, and number two, that they actually did it. I mean, how many of us have great ideas we never follow through on, but it's, it's a book that was, um, put together by a a uh, Czech-born um, Brazilian uh, philosopher named Willem Flusser, who's himself an, a really interesting character and who's just now being translated into English. Um, but he was very interested in the natural sciences and uh, himself you know, found cephalopods interesting uh, and, and thought of them as the exact other of human beings in a lot of ways. And was interested in him precisely for their otherness and their alterity and their alienness. So, but instead of writing a long philosophical exegesis about it, he put together this scientific treatise um, that is highly detailed, well researched, and um, and very thorough. And um, in the edition that's um, that I have, it's um, it. Is included with some illustrations by a French artist named Louis Beck that are these anatomical illustrations, like you'd see in a high school biology textbook or something like that. Um, and it's about a um, a vampire squid, basically. And it's sort of, a, but it's done. It's not done in this overdram sort of dramatic, sort of um, gothic way. It's done in in the cold, clinical sort of presentation of the natural sciences. And I think what my guess is what he's mining there is this tradition of natural history and and teratology texts, you know, classification of aberrations and monsters and so on, where on the one hand, you have this sort of clinical cold classificatory style. But what you're talking about are things that by definition evade classification. (laughs) And so you get an interesting sort of thing going on there.
0: Sort of like Carlyle's Sartoris Resartus*, but with squids.
1: Mm. That's <laughs> a great. That's a great book review. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, <laughs> that's it. Just that sentence. That's the pitch. <laughs> that's yeah. the pitch. Artists, except for squids.
1: <laughs> <The> squids. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so Eugene, um, thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk. We're now at um, the conclusion of our hour. Um, And there's, of course, a million other things that we could have talked about, but we'll leave it to the listeners to explore the books and find those um, gems and squids and decomposing bodies and all those other things for themselves. Now that the books are out, um, what's next for you? What are you working on now? What are you currently inspired by? Um, What can we um, hope to read to come?
1: Well, um, I just uh, have a book coming out this month, um, and it's, called Cosmic Pessimism. And it's published by a little press in um, Minneapolis called Univocal. And they're um, a really interesting small press. They specialize in really um, nice quality letter press editions of philosophy books. And um because I'm I'm sort of I'm a bibliophile, so for me I always you know what the physical artifact looks like is super important. And so I've been wanting to work with them for some time, and they do these really wonderful editions. Uh, and they have a series where they do these sort of pamphlet-style books. So it's a small, you know, 80-page book. It's composed entirely of aphorisms, fragments, and prose poems. Hmm. And um, and I was thinking uh, it's actually sort of the most representative Thing I've written uh, that this little sort of eighty-page book, but it was a great um, experience. It's part of a, a much bigger book that I'm casually shopping around. That's um, about pessimism and is also a rather pessimistic book itself. Um, but this is sort of just a short excerpt, and it has. Uh, I commissioned some artwork for it by an artist named Keith Tilford uh, as well. So that just has come out maybe this month. Yeah.
0: Well, congratulations! We'll definitely look for that as well. And and I have a, um, a final question for you, and um, that just comes mm-hmm. from what we, some of the things we were talking about. Are you listening to any music lately that is particularly inspiring for you that you would recommend that we listen to <clears throat> as well?
1: Oh. I'm hesitant to, like, recommend things to people because, I don't know, but I'm always listening. I could not live without music. I'm always listening to uh, to music. Uh, but I always listen to Bach, um, especially the piano works. Uh, so there's always something along those lines. I was listening to a lot of early music for a while because I was writing about uh, the Requiem, Format and it sort of just depends what i'm i guess uh what I'm thinking about writing about um there's some go to things i mean i've well, i'm a lifelong uh joy division diehard, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know there's that yeah. that stuff um i've been listening to um this woman who goes under the name of grouper yeah. recently, and I think she's based in Portland. But she does these really interesting sorts of um recordings that are kind of muffled and, and ambient and, and but dirty and, and sort of um everything feels buried in, in the recordings and they're really interesting. Um so yeah, stuff like that. I don't know. You know, I mean when I was writing about black metal, then I was I was doing more like listening for research, but um and then occasionally I listen to uh, people like Morton Feldman and contemporary avant-garde stuff. Um, there's a Romanian composer named Janku Dumitrescu, who I think is absolutely fantastic, uh, does these sort of spectralist soundscape kind of works and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's all over the map. But it's one of those things where like I, I kind of know what I like even though on paper it might look like it's all over the map. So.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And I think that's sure. a really nice way to end and to also create another beginning um, in the spirit of the books that we're talking about. So thanks so much, Eugene. It's really been a pleasure. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books Network Seminar. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.